Almost 50 years ago, the landmark Supreme Court case that everyone knows the name of, Roe versus Wade, was decided. And in doing so, it divided the country. But it also strengthened some of our most vital rights. And to this day, right up until the passage of the most recent Texas law, um, it seems like the topic divides us more than ever. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week, Politicon welcomes the author of the brand new groundbreaking book, The Family Row, Joshua Prager. And he'll discuss the history of that case, what it took for the real Roe, Norma McCorvey, to stand up for the rights of women during her time, and how the battle has evolved ever since. Ultimately, the courts are the answer to our laws, but are they the answer to settling our differences? And when we demonize the other side of our most deeply held views, how the heck are we going to get along? Hello, hello. Hi. Oh, hello, Joshua. How are you? How are you? I'm good. Did you go by Joshua or Josh? Either one, don't care. Okay, well, I'm not going to be saying your name much more because I want to talk about Norma Corby, obviously. But, you know, I'm totally fascinated by, I mean, first of all, I think everybody has asked you a hundred times how you were able to get some of the interviews for this book that you've been able to get. Because you are, I mean, I said in the introduction that it was sort of groundbreaking, your, your book, because you got something that no one else in 50 years has ever been able to do. And I'll let you tell people what it was, but as you're doing it, please tell me how you pulled it off. Well, part of it is time. I spent 10 years on this book and I have learned in my life, 25 years as a journalist, that if people have time and they don't feel hurried or harried, they will open up. And I think the other big thing, if I may say, and pat myself a little bit on the back, I think people understood that I was being genuine when I said that I was not writing this book as an advocate for either side, that I genuinely wanted to know what their experience had been like. Um, And these were people who were ardently pro-life and ardently pro-choice. And it's been very gratifying to see in the early reviews that people say, you know what, this is a fair book. And so I think it was time and sort of empathy, if I can say, were the two things that helped people to feel comfortable speaking with me. So um, for, for those folks who are listening and are not aware, um, Joshua was actually able to speak to the child, um, the adult now, uh, who Norma, whom Norma McCorvey was pregnant with um, while she was beginning her uh, case, the Roe v. Wade case in Texas. That's right. It was, a, it was a crazy realization that I had. I had always assumed incorrectly that the woman who had won the legal right to abortion had had an abortion herself. That just seemed so intuitive. And then I saw noted in an article that actually, and then of course it was obvious to me in retrospect, that she had not had an abortion because a law case takes a lot longer than a pregnancy. So she was pregnant in 1969. She filed Roe in 1970, but the case wasn't actually decided until January of 1973, at which point the child she had given birth to and given up for adoption was already a toddler of two and a half years old and had no idea. Obviously, she didn't, but her family had no idea of her connection to Roe. And when I read about this, the fact that Norma, it was actually just written in passing in an article about 
um, gay marriage, it noted in the New Yorker article, it mentioned that sometimes a plaintiff is great for the cause. And they mentioned, for example, the Lovings, who were famous in the case of Loving versus Virginia that wanted to get rid of the ban on interracial marriage. And then they mentioned on the other side, sometimes the plaintiff is not great for the cause. For example, Norma, because she famously switched from being pro-choice to pro-life. And she was also a bit of a loose cannon. Um, Sometimes she lied. She famously lied, for example, saying that she had been raped. And that's how that's what led to her case um, and uh, led her to file the case of Roe v. Wade. And and, she wasn't to them a very sympathetic plaintiff, in other words. Exactly. And they mistreated her. They mistreated her. They kept her away from the table. On the one hand, you can understand that she was, you know, as I say, sort of an unreliable narrator. On the other hand, there was definitely a sort of snobbiness to it, a class element that she didn't go to the fancy schools. And and they they really pushed her aside. And that was that angered Norma. And that was in part why she then switched. She told me from being pro-choice to pro-life to say, "Okay, you're not listening to me. Now you're going to have to listen to me. But it wasn't only that. Religion was also a great source of comfort to her. Um, first, she became an evangelical, and that didn't really, that was too hard for her, she said, but she loved being a Catholic. And so there was also, I don't want to say there was nothing genuine about her conversion, but there was at least an element of striking back at the pro-choice. Now, she had had two, two, one or two children prior to this, is that right? Two prior and and all from the same with the same man or each different. No, Norma had a complicated life. She was gay. She came out. Um, she grew up in a very religious home. Um, they were Jehovah's Witnesses, and and she when she came out, her mother beat her. Her mother Mary was very open with me about that. Um, really, and Norma had told me the same. Um, and Norma. Then when she left her home, lived openly as a lesbian in Dallas in the 1960s, which mm. was a complicated thing to do. That was that was literally dangerous. But she did it anyway. Um, and then she 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 had she slept with many, many women. Um, she uh, her friends told me sort of she was the life of the party. She was a waitress in lesbian bars for a bunch of years. She also which was not known until I wrote this in my book. She was also a prostitute for a time. And so sex was a very big part of her life. It determined a lot in her life. Um, and she slept with men when she was a prostitute. Um, but um, she preferred to be with women. But three times she got pregnant with men, obviously. And those three times she gave birth to girls all three times. And all three times she gave the children up for adoption. The eldest child she knew because that child was raised actually by Norma's own mother adopted the child mm. from her. And and that child, Melissa Mills, did not learn that Norma was actually her mother. She was told she was her sister until she was much older. So it was, as you correctly put it, a, a complicated family. So she gets pregnant then now with her fourth child um, sometime in 1969. Third. Oh, her third, third child, sorry, sometime third, in 1969. Yeah. And... Yeah. How to talk us a little bit through how that process happened because she was not necessarily seeking to change the law herself, she just wanted to be able to terminate her pregnancy, she wanted to make that choice for herself. So, what happened in there that made her essentially, although she was anonymous, made her the face of the most controversial case in American history? 
It's a great question. She did. You're right. She did not care about women's rights or the right to an abortion. She simply wanted an abortion. And what happened was one thing to sort of pause and just say she lied a lot. A lot of the stories that she told over the years were not true. And we can get later into how I was able to determine what was true and what wasn't. She didn't tell the truth often. Um, but um, it is true that she did not care at that point about the movement. She just wanted to have an abortion. And she, um, but she ran out of options. And she, one thing she did do, which made me think about the lie, she later said that she had gone to an abortion clinic where it had just been shuttered and there was blood on the floor. None of that happened. What, what did happen was that she found a clinic. Obviously, it wasn't legal, but it was safe but she could not afford it. It was $500 and she couldn't afford that. She didn't have the money. Especially in 1970, that was... Exactly, a lot of money. And also it was legal in a few other states, including in California. Interestingly enough, then Governor Ronald Reagan had signed that law, um, signed that law into effect. (laughs) But she couldn't afford to fly there either. So finally she went back to the adoption attorney who had brokered the adoption of her second child a man named Henry McCluskey, who was a very fascinating man. He had actually fought, just as an aside, against the sodomy laws in Texas. Hmm. And he had gone to law school with a woman named Linda Coffey. Linda Coffey um, was the woman who filed Roe. And she had told her friend Henry that I'm looking for a plaintiff. And Henry said, well, guess what? There's a woman here who just walked into my office who wants to have an abortion. And so she then became the plaintiff. One of the things that I deal with in my book that is unfortunate and tricky is that it is true that Norma was very close to the point at which you could no longer have an abortion in 1970. She was around the 18th, 19th, 20th week of her pregnancy. But it is also true that her lawyers in no way tried to help her to have an abortion. And they could have flown her either to California, where there was a doctor who did this in D.C., where there was a doctor, or even in Mexico, where Sarah Weddington herself had gone to have an abortion. If she had had the abortion, though, would there, I mean, you spoke to at least one of the attorneys, I'm assuming, would they have not lost their standing to sue if if she no longer needed that, that injunction necessarily to be able to do so? Yeah, that's a great question. She would not have lost standing if the case had already been filed. Uh Uh-huh. But by the time it was filed, it was too late. And they knew that. It was filed in March and she gave birth in June. So, but it's also true that even though she lamented at first that she could not have an abortion, she came to be very proud later on at first of this suit. She called it my law. And about a decade after the decision, she started slowly at first to... um, join the pro-choice movement to speak out on behalf of reproductive rights. And again, as we mentioned, they didn't really want her at the table, but she tried. And by 1989, that's when she really stepped out into the limelight. She had gone to a big um, march of women marched um, for reproductive rights in D.C. in 1989. And there she met Gloria Allred, the lawyer, who promptly took her to California and put her in front of all the 
television cameras. And that was really when she became an advocate in earnest. Who made the decision not to put her name in the, in the, in the filing itself? Why was, why was it Roe v. Wade instead of McCorvey v. Wade? Yeah, good question. She didn't want that. She didn't want it there. And usually the laws require the plaintiff to be named. But with matters of sex, there had been precedent because of privacy concerns that she didn't have to be named. And so Linda Coffey was the one who named her Jane Roe. You know, there have been some, uh, a whole bunch written and, and documentaries about this case. Obviously, it's not, it's, it's, the, it's the one Supreme Court case that I don't know anyone will ever be fully satisfied with the, with the rulings on. Um, but there, there was a documentary recently that I watched that kind of made her out, you know, I won't say unsympathetically, talking about Norma here, but as if though perhaps she got caught up in the celebrity of being Jane Roe and yeah. then perhaps was miffed when uh, she wasn't used as the face of women's rights. And perhaps that's why she yeah. switched sides. Talk about you know, what you learned getting to know her before she died and what you learned about her uh, desire to be in the limelight and how it might have motivated her or her opinions on things. Yeah. So Norma loved the limelight. She had an insatiable want for attention and love. And even though she didn't treat people beautifully, she wanted that in turn. Mm -hmm. She had, for example, a remarkable partner, a woman named Connie Gonzalez, who stood by her through decades of, of everything, including infidelity and abuse and just a, Norma was a difficult woman. And, and I didn't mean physical abuse, just um, emotional abuse. She treated her horribly, um, combustibility, etc. But yes, she always wanted the limelight. And part of her conversion was she knew that if she then became pro-life, she would be able to sort of get a whole new enormous round of attention. The half of the country that didn't pay attention to her before would now do it and also would pay her to give speeches. What isn't true from that documentary, and I had Norma's taxes and everything, and I spoke to everyone, it is not true. She was not paid a cent to convert. Um, and, and the pro-life leaders I spoke to were upset about that assertion, and, for, and, and rightly so. She was not paid. But it is entirely true that she was desperate for attention. The other thing, though, that's complicated about that is I felt for the documentary filmmaker because Norma told her, told him, excuse me, that she had been paid. And Norma lied mm -hmm. endlessly. Just to give you a few examples, she'd had an affair when she was in Catholic school with a woman who later became a nun. She said it was rape, but it was a consensual affair. She told people that her mother kidnapped her child from her when, in fact, Norma begged her pleaded with her to sort of take the child off her hands. She famously told people that she'd been shot at because of, she was Jane Roe, when in fact it was a drug deal. And often a drug deal that had gone bad. And when I tried to, when I confronted her with these things and said, Norma, like you just, you lied so much, why? She, first she'd laughed and said, well, I like my version better. But what was beneath all that was that she was a person who was sort of reimagining herself not as a sinner, but as a victim. And she was raised in a very difficult home. And, and it's understandable. She didn't want to be seen as a sinner. And it was the, the hardest thing for her in all of life, she was very clear with me over and again, was that when she became pro-life, she had to renounce her homosexuality. And that killed her. To, to her dying day, she, she said to me not long before she died, why did I do that? And so she ended up renouncing, she ended up 
leaving the bed of the woman who, the only person really, who had never cared about Jane Roe, but had only cared about Norma. And so that was a very difficult thing. So, I mean, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but I, I definitely do, as you said, want to get back to how you can can parse yeah. fact from truth. She sounds like had yeah. she been able to run in uh, 2016, she would have made a good presidential candidate in that particular year. Um, a little bit of narcissistic personality disorder there. Um, yeah. But you spent more years with her getting to know her than, than have been since she passed. So it, we're, we're talking five, six years that you were able to spend with her or more, right? Um, Actually, interestingly enough, she wouldn't speak to me at first when I reached out to her because I wouldn't pay her. And I explained to her that I'm not allowed to pay her as a journalist. But what ended up happening was I, w- I, ha- I was getting to know her daughters. And we then all met up when Norma's mother, Mary, died. That was 2013. And from 2013 till 2017, I spent hundreds of hours with Norma over the last four years of her life. I was actually at her side when she died. So it's exactly the same amount of years that have passed since then that I spent with her. So, so, but you touched on what I was really wanting to ask first, which is you knew how to find her oldest, her eldest, because she was living with her her own grandmother, mother. Um, How did you even know how to begin finding the other two? Yeah. So what happened was, and I had not yet found even the eldest, what happened was when this, when this thought came to my mind, this desire to find the quote unquote Roe baby as the pro-life community had always referred to her. I first reached out to Norma, as I say, she didn't want to speak. And I started reading about her and the name Connie Gonzalez was known, Norma's former partner. This was in 2010. I did not know that Norma had left her for good just one year prior not long thereafter, uh, not long after Connie had had a stroke. And I went to go visit Connie in Texas. And she was living in the home where she and Norma had lived for years. She was living with a niece of hers who was taking care of her. Despite her stroke, she still could speak and her and, and had a, um, a memory of, of events. And when I went back to see them a second time, Connie told me something amazing. She said, my home is about to be foreclosed on, which was very sad. And she said, Norma's private papers are in the garage and we're about to throw them out. And I said, do not throw out those papers, my goodness. And I said, can I have them? And she said, yes. So they put these papers and it was a big, messy, crazy garage. Private papers, meaning all the records of her adoptions and her medical records and whatnot. Her her. her journal entries and wow. impressive that she kept those <laughs> and her taxes. Yeah. And everything. And she put, they put them into garbage bags with me for me. And I, and I took them in my, the trunk of my rental car and I drove over to my friends. I then later legally purchased them from Norma. I, I wanted this to be all above board. Obviously she did not want these papers. And those papers are now just to tell you at a library at Harvard, where I sold them and I gave the net proceeds of that sale to Norma's three daughters after my book was finished. Anyway, on that very first night when I was going through these thousands of papers, I found one piece of paper that had the date of birth of Norma's youngest child, the Roe baby. It was a interview Norma had given to a Catholic newsletter. And from then it was really, from that point, it was very quick. Um, There were 37 girls I learned who had been born in Dallas County on that day. And um, I quickly found my way to Shelly. I reached out to her mother because I said, if she doesn't know who she is, I don't want to upturn her life. Right. So I reached out to the woman who raised her. And she said, 
And I asked her, do you know Henry McCluskey? I figured I'll ask if they know the adoption attorney who brokered the adoption. She immediately said yes, and we know about Norma. And she told me that Shelley did not wish to speak yet, but that if she would, she would let me know. Well, another year passed when I then got in touch with her again and said to her, by the way, I have found Shelley's two sisters and they are getting together. And Shelley then got right back to me and said, I would like to see them and I would like to participate in your book. Did she tell you about how she found out? Did she talk to you about how she Absolutely. herself found out and what that, how that impacted her? And obviously, I don't want you to give everything away because this whole thing is this fascinating family saga that it's really incredible that no one has, has been able to write for 50 years, despite the fact that even my you know, child knows what Roe v. Wade is. Um, so don't give it all away, but, but what you can tell us about how Shelley found out and was impacted a little bit by finding this out and at what age, you know, that happened. Yeah, she was almost 19 years old and a tabloid had sent an investigator to find her. And Mm. they said, we're going to write about you, whether you like it or not. And Shelley was horrified. And what ended up happening was they ran a story. They didn't identify her by name, but that moment changed Shelley's life forever. She now felt two things. She felt that she carried an enormous secret. And she worried, as she told me, that every time she met someone, that person might now discover who she really was, discover her connection to Roe and to Norma. The other thing was she did not want to be a symbol. Um, She was in a home that her mother was pro-life. And I think at that time, Shelley probably was too. She's not quite sure on on that right now. But what she says was, when that happened, And she was being asked by these tabloid reporters, are you pro-choice or are you pro-life? It suddenly seemed to her, why do I have to decide? Why can't I be sort of ambivalent about this? Why does anyone have to decide? And what she finally realized for herself, and this is where she is today, is that she herself could not have an abortion. And in fact, she later got pregnant before she was married. And and her then husband intimated to her, maybe we should do that. And she, she realized, I don't want to do that. That's not part of who I am. And yet she believed in a right to choose. She believed that it ought to be legal. But she carried those two things, that fear of being unmasked and also that desire to not be called a symbol for the pro-life community. That was very hard. She wanted to sort of differentiate and separate herself from Roe and Norma. And so in my book, she was able to sort of tell her story. And it's really a remarkable story that she has. It's interesting that you said she was, she's kind of gotten to a point now where she's, I guess, am, am I wrong to say she's still slightly ambivalent about abortion Absolutely. for others herself? Absolutely. It sounds like, you know, Norma McCorvey, I'm not going to say, call her Shelley's mother, um, but Norma McCorvey, her biological uh, mother, yeah. was ambivalent too. I mean, she was, she was on the Absolutely. side that was most beneficial to her. The people who are at most central to this story who are, you know, synonymous with a woman's right to choose, pro-life, pro-choice debate, neither really have or had a horribly strong opinion about it. Is that interesting yeah, to you? And you know what? I don't think that's a coincidence. What I mean by that is I think abortion is fraught for good reason. And The two sides have become so polarized and so politicized and somewhat extreme, and they don't 
they don't listen really much to the other side. You don't and say. I, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's not every topic, but definitely this one. Yeah. And what I tried desperately to do was to humanize this issue and, to, and, and explain how it's complicated. And, and, and human reality is complicated. And so, you know, one thing, though, that's fascinating is Norma actually represented the great majoritarian middle ground of Americans on abortion. Studies show, you know, the data shows that people believe, the great majority of Americans believe that abortion ought to be legal, but only up to a point, not through the second trimester. It goes down tremendously by trimester. They believe it ought to be legal through the first trimester. And that's exactly what Norma believed. She was made to say things that she didn't agree with when she was pro-choice, and she was made to say things that she didn't agree with when she was pro-life. But I know what she really believed, because a few days after Roe in 1973, she gave an interview with a totally tiny little publication, the Baptist Press. And just to show how much this country has changed, the Southern Baptist Convention at that time was ardently pro-choice. And Linda Coffey, who filed the case, was pro-choice. No one would believe that now, but ardently pro-choice. And and Norma said that I believe in abortion through the first trimester. And after she then became pro-life and she went on Ted Koppel, you know, ABC World News Tonight or whatever, and spoke to Ted Koppel, she horrified her friends in Operation Rescue because she said the same thing. I believe a woman should have the right to choose through the first trimester. So before she was made to sort of just parrot. She accidentally you know, the told the truth. That's right. And that's what she really believed. And that is what the majority of Americans believe. Did she have a relationship at all or any interaction whatsoever with either of her other two children before she passed? So her relationship with Melissa, the eldest, the eldest. Was, was, was very difficult. She, she was not fit to be a mother and she didn't want to be a mother. And the few times when... Melissa sort of relied upon Norma and looked to her for sort of mothering. Norma failed miserably in a very sad story when Norm, when Melissa was just five or so years old and Norma was with actually the father of the, the biological father of the third child. They locked Norma in, they locked Melissa in the car just so they could spend a night together. Hmm. Um, this was the kind of thing that Norma did. But remarkably, Melissa found it within herself to be good to Norma anyway. And she took care of Norma at the very end of her life. I write about how she took care of her right up until Norma's death, which was quite something. Melissa was desperate to not be like Norma. She was desperate to be a mother to her children, to have a cohesive family. And she found it within herself to be good to Norma. Jennifer, the second child, had no idea who her biological mother was until I reached out to her. And she had been desperate to find out she is gay, and her partner told me that they had just hired, she was about to hire a private investigator to look for her biological mother. And um, it was a great relief to Jennifer to learn because setting aside Norma and Roe v. Wade, in fact, she had not heard of Roe v. Wade, one of the few people who hadn't, who I've encountered who has not heard of it. But she told me that she had, she had overcome demons for example, she had a drinking problem. She had a drug problem. She was now doing very well. But she wondered, was there some sort of a genetic predisposition in me to those problems? And in fact, Norma had battled the very same demons. They did become, they did have a relationship at the end of Norma's life. And that was gratifying to both of them. They weren't close, but they were civil. And then finally, Shelley, unfortunately, and I describe it in my book in great detail, 
when they, they never met, but when they spoke on the phone, Norma said horrible things to her. And um, Shelley, um, unfortunately, had, had, to, had to deal with that. Um, Norma said, I should, I should have, no, she said, you need to thank me. And she said, why? And she said, for not aborting you. Now, setting aside that as a miserable thing to say to someone, Norma, of course, had tried to have an abortion. Um, and in How, my book, what, what, was, what was the mindset when that call happened? Did Norma have a history of, of saying things that were rational? Was she angry? Was she drunk? Or did you think she really meant those things? It's a good question. She, she definitely was angry. And her anger came. They had a fight. Um, Norma and her, had said that she wished to go visit Shelley with her partner, Connie. And, and Shelley said... Shelly had a little son at that time, and she said, how am I supposed to explain to my son that his grandmother is gay? And oh, Norma damn. Had very, <laughs> yeah, yes, so this was complicated. This was in the early 90s, and they got into a fight. I'm actually more funny. surprised that she called her, that she was acknowledging Norma as her son's grandmother. That surprises well, you know me what? more than the gay comment, honestly. Well, maybe she didn't use that word. How am I supposed to say that my biological mother, it, however right. she's Because you know what? You're probably right. Um, and, you know, in my book, um, it is a big book, and it also has hundreds of pages of endnotes. I was very careful that every single quote, people would know exactly where they came from. But anyway, that was when Norma then said that very ugly thing, and they had a falling out that they never recovered from. So, so how did you... As, I mean, clearly Norma has got some had, had some psychological issues. Yeah, uh, certainly a tough life. As you got to know her, did you just as you took notes when she was talking? Did you just constantly put an asterisk besides the things that you knew you might need to check out again? Like, how were you able to tell what was true and what was not? Yes, every single thing she said to me, I checked out. And what would happen was. And how did I check it out? I had two things that I did, three things. I had the papers, which enabled me to find things out. And I can talk a little bit more about that. I would always go back and see. So for example, you know, she told people that when she had wanted an abortion, as I said, she went to a clinic and it was just been shuttered and it was caked in blood, this very dramatic thing. But I would always go back and say, did she ever say anything years before she was famous. And I would find a little interview she gave, you know, in 1981, 15 years before she said that, where she actually told the truth. Um, and so I would always go back for the earliest written record. And, and, and finally, what I did was I interviewed literally hundreds of people, people who had intersected with Norma's life at every turn. So when Norma told people that her mother kidnapped her child, I found the woman Norma was living with at that time who told me in great detail how, in fact, Norma was unfit to be a mother, didn't want this child, and had begged her mother to take her off of her hands. So I confirmed and corroborated everything as best I could. And that was really how I was able to do it. And the interesting thing was when I would finally happen upon the truth, I would say it to Norma and she would acknowledge it. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> But her okay. version, she liked better, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, she liked better. She ten years, 
10 years overall, um, you said you started, you had a relationship with Norma or began talking to her when her mom died. You said 2012. 2013. So, 2013. Yeah. so about four years, four or so years that you were able yeah. to get to know Norma McCorvey yeah. herself. Yeah. By that yeah. point, you obviously had already met the three daughters and were talking to them. You talked to the attorneys on both sides of the case. You talked to Norma's extended family. You talked to her her longtime partner, Connie. But through the book, it's very impressive that you don't give – I mean, it's got to be difficult to not have an opinion on all these things as you're so enveloped in it. And, I, and you don't really talk too much about your own opinion on the case itself, but you have to have some opinion of her. I do, and I'll tell it to you. I think it would be disingenuous not to mention this, and I mentioned it in the author's note. I am personally pro-choice. But I did not involve myself in this. And I was so fair that the proof of that is both sides are angry at me. Yeah, well, <laughs> because included, everybody's pissed at you. You're doing something right. Yeah, that's what I've always that's said. That's <laughs> right. I included in there sort of ammunition for both sides. So, so, for example, I tried as best I could to always strip away the propaganda. To give you one example, on the pro-life side, they speak a lot about how there are women who have abortions and are overcome by regret. Well, of course, there are some. But endless data show that the predominant reaction that a woman has when she gives a child, when she has an abortion is relief, not regret. Um, and in fact, Ronald Reagan's own Surgeon General, C. Everett Koop, who was very much pro-life, looked into this and concluded the exact same thing. He said from a public health point of view, the percentage of women who, who have abortions and suffer from a mental health point of view is, to use his word, minuscule. Conversely, the women who give their who relinquish their children to adoption, there is a lot of literature about how that is very difficult for a woman. Even if you think it's a beautiful thing to do, it is difficult because there's not closure involved that right. they they're not right. able to know exactly. where. Exactly. So that's one example of something where the pro-choice pro-choice will nod their heads and the pro-life will will be frustrated with me. On the other side, I write. Not only did I write about the Roe baby, which is you know, as I said, the pro-life movement has always said that whoever this person is, he or she is the sort of living incarnation of our argument against abortion. They will say, had Roe been the law, this human being would not have been alive. It's a very powerful thing to be able to do. But to give you another example, I also wrote a lot about Sarah Weddington, who was the woman who argued the case in the Supreme Court. She was just 26, a very brilliant woman. And she mistreated Norma. Um, and she also mistreated her co-counsel. Because it was Sarah Wed uh, Weddington's Lady mission, Paul. not Norma's, right? Yeah. And she just, she, and I write, she even lied on the record about certain things. You mentioned Norma's standing. Sarah told on several occasions, she said that Norma, so as to make sure that she had standing, so as to make sure that she would be able to bring the suit, she chose not to have the abortion. Well, that's nonsense. Norma was desperate to have the abortion, but it was too late in the pregnancy for her to do so. And I could go on and on and on. There is a lot on both sides here that are, that are you know, pro-life. I'm, I'm honestly more interested, I mean, I'm obviously interested in discussing the, the legalities and the, you know, the morality of, of abortion itself. But to me, it's fascinating to, I want to hear from you how, you're able to write about someone who you have 
gotten to know so well. I mean, you were with Norma when she died. Yeah. You had yeah. not finished writing the book. Do you miss her? Um, and if you have those types of emotions with someone who's been a part of your life in so many ways for so long, how are you? How how did you prevent yourself from getting too caught up in the story or too caught up in the in the not in the story yourself, but too caught up with emotions for these people who you've been, who you saw the humanity of that you um, are able to be objective as you're writing it. Well, I just to say one thing about from a journalism point of view, I feel that journalists involve themselves too much in their work. I don't mean emotionally. I mean, in terms of writing it, they always put themselves in the work. They they're invariably the hero. I don't believe in that. I think you should, a journalist should only be in his or her work when it would be disingenuous for them not to be. So the only times that I mention in my entire book are when I have to be, for example, when I introduce the daughters, um, something like that. So I try to step back. Now, in terms of emotionally, I absolutely became intertwined with these people. I cared about them enormously. And I will tell you that in my book, I use an epigraph, a quote at the very beginning of the book from my favorite book, Moby Dick. And he writes in there, Herman Melville, he says, See how elastic our stiff prejudices grow when love once comes to bend them. Basically saying Mm. it is impossible to be prejudiced against a group if you know them. Because when you get to know someone personally, you care about them. And so I wanted, just to give an example, gay marriage and the legalization of gay marriage. It was very easy when it's just an abstract argument to say, oh, I think gay marriage shouldn't be legal. But then let's say it's your son or your brother or your daughter or your sister, your best friend who's gay and wants to get married. Then it's very hard saying, hmm, why should this person I love not be able to enjoy the exact same benefits that I do? So that's how I approach this book. I wanted to make my reader challenge my reader to not care about people who disagree with them. And people do. And thankfully, the, the, the early reviews in my book and in, you know, in big publications are pointing this out, this exact thing out, saying it's not so neat and tidy. It's a lot easier for us to read things that we just reflexively agree with. But here's a book that makes things complicated. And I think that's how it should be. Is there anyone you didn't get to talk to that you wish you had? Well, there was only one person who refused to speak with me, Sarah Weddington. She would not mm. talk to me. And, and it's sad because she's more three-dimensional than I was able to present her. I did my best. Um, but I spoke to everyone. I spoke to the leaders of the pro-choice movement and the leaders of the pro-life movement. And you know what was nice? The people, the leaders often were very difficult. They didn't treat Norma so great, to be perfectly honest, on either side. They used her. They used her to raise money. They used her to get headlines. She gave as good as she got. She, she made a living out of all this. But they used her. But you know what? By and large, the people who were not famous, um, who were on both sides and who got to know Norma, by and large, they were the ones that treated her well, that tried to do right by her. And there was one woman named Judy Wiggins, who was a woman who helped Norma out when Norma was living in Mississippi, of all places, um, and working there, giving talks when she was pro-life. And she said that when Norma, you know, when they were traveling together off to give some lecture, when it was private and no one was paying attention, that's when Norma was honest. And and that's what I found, too. And she said that's when Norma told the truth that, yes, she did believe in abortion to a point, to a degree. And what Judy said, and this was a woman who was a pro-life advocate, 
she herself had had several abortions before she became a pro-life advocate. And she said Norma embodied the sort of complicated realities of abortion, the ambivalences and ambiguities that so many of us feel. And, and I think that was a very important insight. Do you, I mean, as I listen to you talk about her, um, the humanity of it, and that's, again, what makes the book so fascinating, is that it's about the humanity. And I've often, you know, we see from, we talk about politics on this show all the time. We see politicians, we see leaders, we see talking heads, and they are so two-dimensional. Um, yeah. that, that, that we only know them for their opinion on this or the action they took in Congress or didn't take in Congress or whatever. And we never really talk about them as humans. And you've taken in this book and, and minimized the discussion of the policy issues and maximized the discussion of the human at the cent- humans at the center of this case. And, do you first 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 part of the question? Do you think Norma McCorvey is a sympathetic character? Is she, was she a sympathetic character to you after you got to know her? Uh, she, I'm not going to lie, she was very difficult. You would receive one text message from her saying, "Oh, I I love you, and I'm so glad we're working." And 15 minutes later, nothing had changed, and there was a, a, a text message just filled with. Cursing she you would out. have been a good president from 2016 to 2020. Oh <laughs> Very complicated. Perfect but I, but, but I did feel for her. But I just want to say one thing about what you said just prior. Uh-huh. You're right that hum, like the human element is what motivated me throughout this. But I even use it to write about the politics. One of the complicated and amazing things that I didn't know, it didn't used to be a partisan issue. In fact, when Roe v. Wade is decided in 1973 by a 7-2 to two majority, a few years later, the first Supreme Court justice to get appointed to the court after Roe is John Stevens. He was not even asked about his opinion on Roe. Now that's all they ask right. the person. About. And, and I show how that changes. And so to just give you an example about how important it is to look at people and their own experiences and their own histories, two of the justices on the Supreme Court, at least two, but two I found had personal experiences with abortion or with they could understand it. At the time, the 1972 three court. That's right. Harry Blackman, who Who wrote wrote the majority. majority, His daughter, I believe her name was Sally, had found herself unhappily pregnant in college a few years before. And this rerouted her life. So he had a very real appreciation for what had abortion been legal, what that might have done for her. Similarly, another justice, Justice Powell, Lewis Powell, he told later sort of privately about how he had been at a law firm. And I believe it was someone, one of the messengers at the law firm had come to him and said, I brought my girlfriend to an illegal Mm. abortion provider. She then died. And now I am in trouble for manslaughter. Will you help me? And Justice Powell did try to help him. Well, interesting. Those two were two that were not as stock. I mean, they weren't Justice Brennan. <laughs> they weren't That's Justice right. Marshall who were adamantly were in favor, but they were sort of on the fence. So having that yes, they were Republican appointees right. and they both came out in favor of abortion. But exactly. having but having that experience, having that connection to the humanity. So I guess what I'm I guess what I'm getting to by asking about the the power of having the personal experience like you were talking about with Powell and, and uh Blackman, the having the 
story behind, you know, the, the true story behind these very dynamic and, and complex characters. Do you now also sort of, sort of understand perhaps why Norma McCorvey was not the plaintiff that Sarah Weddington uh, wanted, um, how, how, the, how it was important for them to have that sympathetic witness and why they might have kept her hidden? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I, you know, one of the beautiful things, if you believe in a right to choose and a right to choice, is you say, hey, it's not just for the lily white, perfect plaintiff who went to Harvard and did all. It's for anybody who in any circumstance wants it. That's why you believe in a right to choice. And that, in a sense, is what Norma embodied. And what I what I show what is so complicated about Norma's life is not only Norma, but her mother and her grandmother all had lives that were completely changed by an unwanted pregnancy when they were young women. Norma's mother had a very sad thing, just to tell you one, one other story. Norma's mother, Mary, got pregnant when she was 17 years old, and she was not married. And her very religious family said, no way can you raise this child. Um, and she couldn't have an abortion. So they made her leave the town where she lived, this little town along the Atchafalaya River in Louisiana. She went to Baton Rouge. She gave birth to the child. And then her parents raised the child and pretended that she had given birth to the child. And the fact that Norma's mother, Mary, could not raise the child she had given birth to destroyed her. She became an alcoholic and she was never the same. And so you know, my book shows what happens on both sides. On the other side, I write all the time. So many of the leaders in the pro-life community were, to use their words, almost aborted, or they had had children who were almost aborted. Flip Benham, the minister who, who baptized Norma, he had wanted, his wife got pregnant. He had wanted her to have an abortion. She then had twin boys. She said no. And those boys then became, you know, his beloved sons. And he said, what did I almost do? And so that's an example of someone seeing it on the other side. And you don't, I mean, would you say that her life was defined by this? Or do you think that her life was defined by other stuff? That's a fascinating question. Shelley lamented the fact that Norma's life was defined by it. And she was desperate. She felt for her biological mother in that respect, even though that takes a lot to feel for for Norma in this case, but she did, she brought that up. And, and yet, and, and what was most important to her was to not have a life defined by that. But who chooses that, right? Did, was, it, was Norma's life defined by that because Norma chose for it to be defined by that? Um, or, or The answer to that is yes, yes. She could have receded into the background, but she stepped forward into the limelight. She loved the limelight. And in fact, once she had become well-known as a pro-choice advocate, when she then came back from California where Gloria Oren had taken her back to Texas to her partner, she, she said, I don't want to be working cleaning apartments anymore like we do. I only want to talk about Roe. I want to be in front of the cameras. And over and again, she came up with crazy stories to get her back in the papers. So she chose that. She really did. But I'm so struck by all the stuff you talked about with the back, her background in general, yeah. about her, yeah. her childhood, her mother abusing her, her giving away um, her first child to her mother, her putting her second one. I mean, her story is already fascinating. I mean, yeah. 
incredibly fascinating before 1969 even happens. So, so, so she's an incredibly complex character for Meryl Streep to play one day. Um, <laughs> but she's also, you know, I, but it, it just makes me think you you get to choose what your what defines your life, right? And had she not chosen this, perhaps it wouldn't. Shelley is choosing not to be, exactly. I mean, I haven't seen her interviewed publicly anywhere since it's gonna this. Happen, since, it's going to happen before too long. And she is going to say exactly that. I am, you know, this was thrust upon me and I'm glad I was able to tell my story now. I am not the role baby. I'm not a symbol. I'm Shelley Thornton. I'm different than this. Yes, this is a part of my bio, but I am not simply the result of, of a decision made by another person. So we get to choose. We always try to get listener questions in. We had a whole bunch, but I've totally, totally monopolized um, the call, the, the, the episode this week. But I do want to get in this one from, from Ben in Houston because I think it's, uh, it's telling. He asks, does the media do a good enough job of covering this issue? Um, in general, I think a lot of the questions were about abortion and the debate about abortion. But but Ben's question stands out to me because I wonder your opinion as a journalist who has certainly written more a, a more fact based non narrative journalism as well in the past. Has the media done a good job of of covering the abortion issue in general over the past 30 years as it's gotten heated? Or should they do more of the personal storytelling? It's a great question. I'm not sure I'm prepared for it. I need to think. You know, I would say my way of answering that is that I feel that my book is unique. I have on my wall here hundreds of books that I read over the last decade, literally, about Roe and abortion. And there isn't another book like this. Um, and I think that's telling. I do think that these narratives become so ingrained in us. So just to give you one little right. example, one side, but the two sides won't even allow the other side to call them what they want, right? So you're you're either, if you're, if you're pro-choice, then the other side is anti-abortion. If you're pro-life, then you're pro, the other side is pro-abortion. And my God, like at least let people call themselves what they want. And I write in my author's note that I refer to them as pro-choice and pro-life. Like that would be a good starting point. Let people call themselves well, and, and, what and they want. Well, and those who do, so I mean, the, the media answer, does guess, exactly what no, you were I do not talking about as well. They do the media job. will say pro-choice and, um, pro and, and then anti-choice. So, I mean, depending on who you, who you talk to and, and just, or vice versa. And just that alone shows an, shows a bias, right? That's right. Because nobody's anti-choice normally. I mean, that's a negative thing in this particular it's, issue, it, right? It is. It is exactly. It, exactly. And I, and, I, and I had to make, that's right. And I had to make these crazy decisions, even just the language. So, right. for example... If you use the word fetus, then the pro-life will say, well, how dare you use the word fetus? That's an unborn child. So that was another choice that I made. I called pro-choice and pro-life, but I did use the word fetus because I think specificity is important. And I don't think that a, that a, that a, a single cell, even if it is going to become well, there you a go, child, Megan, I don't think that I'm sure you'll make the other one mad again, too. Listen, so I I've said it a few, a few times already. Um, if, if you... 
if you've been alive <laughs> in America, and you're not Jennifer, who didn't know what Roe v. Wade was, apparently, <laughs> but if you've been alive in America and not living in that house, um, you know what Roe v. Wade is. You know how important it is not just for women's health care and women's rights to choose and and in this abortion debate but but so much of um of all supreme court cases get tied to roe how a, how a supreme court justice um decides a, a case on on gay marriage gets tied to what they will probably do on roe as supreme court justices get nominated and and their hearings as Joshua's already said they get asked how they feel about Roe. It is sort of the most powerful precedent in America um, right now. You have not not heard of this story. You have not not heard of this case. But what you have not heard is the real story behind Norma McCorvey. You've not heard the story behind Shelley, um, who is the child who Norma um, was did not terminate um, the pregnancy, that pregnancy. Um, and you've not heard near as much background information as Joshua has in his book, The Family Row. So I absolutely urge you, it's, it's a narrative, um, not just, I mean, it's not just, a, not just fact-filled, but it's narrative, and it's a beautiful story of average Americans. Would you, would you call them average Americans? Um. And so don't wait for the movie because he's going to have a long negotiation process as he, uh, <laughs> as he sells absolutely. the rights to this book because it is just absolutely fascinating. Um, don't wait for it. Get the book. It's The Family Row, Joshua Prager. Um, you've written a book about the most controversial thing in um, – one of the most controversial topics in America in the last half century. Um, you have sat – with people, as you've said, on both sides of this incredibly contentious issue, people who are passionate on this side, passionate on that side, do not agree. I can't think of anybody who I've asked this question to in the last year who is maybe better prepared to tell me an answer to it because you've really been in the mix of it for, for 10 years. How the heck are we going to get along? Oh, that is a very, it, it really does go back to what I believe in deeply that quote by Melville that we need to get to know each other. When you know somebody who isn't just like you, you begin to care about them. And so we need to not only listen to the news stations that will tell us what we want to hear. And we need to not only know people who look and just like us and believe the things we believe. We need to be challenged just like all of us may have made decisions that aren't exactly like what our parents made, so to now talk to someone civilly, hear what they think. And that's what I tried to do in my book. And if you do that, there is, there really, there, it's, it's, it's like a, it's formulaic. It will happen that if you spend time with people who are not just like you, you will begin to broaden your horizons and think a little bit outside the box. And if we could all do that just a little bit, this country would be a much better place.